We've been studying over the course of several weeks a series of lessons that we refer to as fundamental truths. And these truths form a basis upon which our faith stands. And in previous lessons, we have noted that there are three primary truths that form that basis. There is the pillar of the existence of God, the pillar of the deity of Jesus who is the Christ, and the pillar of the inspiration of Scripture. And if it is the case that God exists, and if it is the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then those three truths form the foundation upon which everything else is based. Now, if we were going to move in a logical sequence from the concept of God and Jesus as the Son of God and the Bible as the Word of God, the next logical place that we would go is to the creation of man who is made in the image of God. And very briefly, let me say just a little bit about that before we move into something else that I think will take the majority of our time for a few weeks. I appreciate very much the words of James's prayer a few moments ago, and especially the idea that man is a social being. We are, aren't we? God did not create man to live in complete and utter isolation. As a matter of fact, when Adam was in isolation, so to speak, when he was the only human created, God looked at Adam and he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so as a result, God created Eve, which tells us that man in society, if you will, is better suited to accomplish the goal for which God created him, to seek the Lord. There are three divinely created institutions. There is the institution of the home that began in Genesis, the second chapter, or at least in the sixth day of creation, which is described in greater detail in Genesis chapter 2. There is the creation of the government, and Romans 13 tells us that there is no authority that exists except as such is authorized by God. And there is the creation of the church. The home came to exist in part for the physical, social needs of man. The government to take care of the physical caretaking of humanity. And the church to take care of the spiritual direction and the spiritual needs of man. Those three all work in conjunction with one another. Never in contrast if they're all fulfilling the role that God designed them to fulfill. And so what I want us to do as we have time in this study is to turn our attention to the third of those divine institutions, to the church. And I want us to consider what Scripture tells us about the church. Now, if we were going to take the time to try to define what the church is to someone, how might we do that? You might say something like, the church is the body of believers. And that's absolutely the case. And in Scripture, you will find that the analogy of the human body is applied to the church uh, in more than one case, actually. And we'll look at some of those analogies a little later on. But to define the church by merely speaking in analogy, to say the church is the kingdom, the church is the house of God, the church is the body of God, or something of that nature, 
really doesn't provide for us a full definition. So what is the church? I don't believe that we can answer that question without examining several aspects about the church, and these are numerous in many ways. We have, for example, the question of the church's identity, the question of the undenominational nature of the church, the question of the church's origin, of its work, of its organization, of its worship. All of those concepts are concepts that have to be a part of how we define the church. What is it? It is the family of God called out of the world, called together to glorify God, to honor God, not only in our worship but in the things that we do. It is that body that is called out that we enter based upon our compliance with God's terms, baptized into Christ, washed in His blood, the church that began on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus, and yet the church that was planned by our God from all of eternity. That's the church that we're talking about. And for our sakes, it is very, very important to understand that the church that we read about in the Bible is not a denomination. Now, the word denomination really simply refers to a kind of a thing. In the New Testament, uh, the word sect was used perhaps more frequently. And when the Apostle Paul was accused of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, he didn't allow that language to go untested. He responded and he said, according to the way which they call a sect, so I preach to you. When we talk about the church, the church that you read about in the Bible, the New Testament church, we're not talking about one body that can be placed alongside a number of other religious groups and compared and contrasted and viewed along a linear plane. We're talking about the church that Jesus promised to establish. We're talking about the church that followed the teachings of Christ. We're talking about the church that belongs to Christ. And oftentimes, when we refer to this church, if you will notice, we will talk about the church of Christ, and the word church is not capitalized because it's not a title. It is a description. Now, why is that the case? Well... As we seek to answer the question, what is the church, perhaps we can provide some assistance in answering that. First of all, I think it's important to understand at least a little bit about the derivation of the term church. The Greek word that is often used in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, it's used over a hundred times, is the word ekklesia. And it's a compound word which means to call out. And there have been a number of sermons based upon the idea that we are the called out people of God. But to be fair, the word was not used that way in the New Testament. The word was used that way, the word was used to simply refer to an assembly that had been called together. And there are examples in the New Testament where the word ecclesia is used not to describe any kind of religious setting, but to simply describe a gathering of people. 
It is an ecclesia. It is an assembly. And so the word actually means assembly. It's the idea of people who are coming together for a specific purpose. And an example of that, look in your Bibles to Acts the 19th chapter. You might recall that in Acts 19, Paul has been in Ephesus for some time. As a matter of fact, we learned from Acts 20 that he was there for three years. But during the time that Paul is in Ephesus, there arises a great commotion, especially amongst the silversmiths of the city. And the reason the silversmiths are upset is because Paul has been challenging the sin of idolatry. And as individuals are turning away from paganism, they're also turning away from something that was very lucrative to those silversmiths. They were making idols for the goddess Diana. And as a result of that, they saw their trade was about to end, and they had to stop Paul's efforts. And so they set the city literally in an uproar, and the people rushed together. Now, look at what verse 32 says. And some therefore cried one thing, and some another... For the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now the word assembly is the very same word that is often translated church, which goes to show us that ecclesia doesn't mean called out in the sense that we often use it to describe members of the church. It simply refers to a gathering of people. Now it can be a gathering for a bad reason, or it can be a gathering for a good reason. And so just to use the definition of the term doesn't help us. But the church is indeed an assembly of the people of God. More importantly, we should notice that the word church is used in other ways to refer to the religious church. For example, look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and you recall the conversation that's taking place here beginning in verse 13. Jesus has asked his disciples who men say that he, the Son of Man, is. And he's given them the answer to the question when he uses that phrase, Son of Man. But they respond with a variety of other answers. And they say, well, you know, some say you are John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus did have tendencies that were like all of those men. Like John, he taught a strict moral doctrine. He was preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Uh, like Elijah, he was very powerful. Like Jeremiah, he was full of compassion. But Jesus was not John or Elijah or Jeremiah. He was not one of the other prophets. So he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one who responds, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to Peter's declaration, says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that, that uh, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When he says, upon this rock I will build my church, there's our word. Now how is Jesus using that term in that place. What was the rock that he's talking about? It's the confession that Peter has just made. Upon the very fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember one of the pillars that we've been talking about. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He said, I will build my church, His assembly, His 
family of God, His body, His bride, all of those analogies that are used, His kingdom. That's what Jesus was going to do. And so in Matthew the 16th chapter, He's using that word ecclesia in a universal sense. He's talking about the church as it applies in the largest possible way. By the way, that's the church that you and I want to be a part of. The church that Jesus died to build. The church that Jesus established. The church that is built upon the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So there is that universal sense of the term when it's used in Scripture. But there's also another sense in which the term is used. And for an example of that, look at the way 1 Corinthians begins. It's not the only place that we find this usage. But when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, we've already noticed that the word can be used just to describe an assembly of people. That was the case in Acts 19 with the crowd that had gathered, uh, not really even knowing why they had come together. And we've also noticed that the word can be used to talk about the church in the broadest possible sense, the church that belongs to Christ, that's built upon the foundation that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. But how is it used in this passage? When Paul says that he's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth... He is bringing that word into a much more narrow frame of reference. We're not talking about the universal, the broadest possible meaning of the word church here, because this is the church that is located at a particular spot. And so the term can be used to talk about a congregation. We are the Lord's church that meets here at Gloucester Street. That's a similar usage of that language. So you have the term ecclesia that can be used in a very broad way, and you have it in a, in a sense that is much more narrow. And you find that usage in a variety of other places. So, for example, look at Acts 9 and verse 31. You'll have a statement like the one that's made here reporting about the progress of the church when it says, then the church is plural. The churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Now someone might stop at that juncture and read the word churches in verse 31 and say, hold on just a second, I thought there's only one body, Ephesians 4 verse 4, and that body is the church, Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, and that's the case. There is only one church in the broadest possible sense, in the universal sense. We're not a kind of any other church. We're not just a replica or a representation of the church. We want to be the church. But there are local congregations. And the local congregations are what are in view here in Acts, the ninth chapter. 
So to summarize this, you have the church being described at least in three ways. You have the universal sense, which we've discussed. You have the church being described in the local sense. We mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you'll see the same sort of thing. Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians. And then, of course, as he concludes the book of Romans, he mentions that the churches of Christ salute you. Those local congregations that were near where Paul was when he wrote that letter to the church at Rome were also sending their greetings to the Christians in Rome. The churches of Christ salute you. And so the church can be used universally. It can be used to describe a local congregational setting. And the term can also be used, and sometimes we overlook this, to describe the worship assembly. And an example of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you'll look over there. 1 Corinthians 14. And in the context, you might recall that the Apostle Paul was writing to individuals about the use of spiritual gifts in an appropriate way. And in this context, beginning in chapter 12, he delineates what the spiritual gifts are. In chapter 13, he talks about how long they're going to last. And in chapter 14, he talks about how they should be used. And one of the things that he says in chapter 14 that has specific application to what we're talking about tonight is this, beginning in verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for the women to speak in church. Now let's stop for just a moment and ask ourselves how the term church, how the term ecclesia is being used in this passage. Is it being used in the universal sense? Well, no, we know it's not because Paul uses the plural churches in verse 34. That can't be the case. Is it being used in a local sense? Well, when we come together to worship, aren't we singing collectively? We do, don't we? Scripture doesn't just tell us that men are to sing only, but that we are all to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so the term can't have reference to the church universal. It can't have reference to a local congregation. Otherwise, a female who wishes to confess Christ before baptism could not do so. What does it have reference to then? It has reference to the worship assembly, uh, to the idea of authority in the assembly, taking the position of the lead as is under consideration here in this passage. So the word can be used in that very specific sense, although most of the time when you find it, it will either be describing the church universally or the church locally. Now, one point about the church that's very important for us to remember. The church is not the building. The church is not any of those analogies that we have already mentioned solely and exclusively. The church is composed of the people. You and I make up the church that meets here at Gloucester Street. And we are a part of the church that belongs to Christ. Our language, by the way, ought to reflect that. The way that we talk about the church should show our understanding of that truth. It is composed of people. 
There are a lot of passages that we could cite that would help us to better appreciate that point. For instance, look at Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. You recall the events of Acts chapter 2 on the Pentecost that follows the resurrection of Jesus. We'll talk much more about this at a later time. And on this occasion, the individuals who heard Peter preach the gospel are pricked in the heart and they want to be obedient to God's plan. And so they respond and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them of the urgency of repenting of their sin and being baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins. And the Bible tells us in verse 41 that those who gladly received His word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, to whom were these folks added, and what does that mean? Well, they're added to the group that was praying when the Holy Spirit fell at the beginning of the book of Acts. They're added to a group of individuals, which is the nucleus of the church that belongs to Christ. When you get down to verse 47 of the text, the Bible says, "...praising God and having favor with all the people..." And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. To what is God adding those who are saved? He is adding them to the church. But perhaps we should rather say, to whom does God add those who are saved? The collection of individuals who have obeyed the gospel. That's the idea of verse 41 of the text. And it's the idea that's conveyed in verse 47. If you go on a little further in the book of Acts, in the fifth chapter, you will recall the event of Ananias and Sapphira. Individuals who had lied to the Holy Spirit and challenged the authority of the apostles. And on that occasion, they were struck dead because of the error of their ways. And in verse 11, the result of that divine discipline is made known. The text says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now why do we cite that verse? Well, fear is an emotion that affects human beings. Who was afraid when they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? The Christians who made up the church. The individuals who composed the Lord's body in that location on that occasion. And by the way, the divine discipline of Ananias and Sapphira not only had an impact upon the Christians in that location, great fear came upon the church, but it also had an impact upon those who heard about it, those who were on the outside that realized what had taken place. Another example that helps us to appreciate that the church is composed of people is in Acts the 11th chapter. In Acts 11, you will find the church in Jerusalem hearing good things about the church in Antioch. And in an effort to help them in their evangelistic work, verse 22 says, The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. By the way, a building doesn't have ears. We're not just talking about uh, some kind of uh, organization. We're talking about a group of individuals collectively who hear about something. The church... Uh, heard about the news that was taking place, and as a result, they, who? The church, sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. 
church at Jerusalem hears about the good things that are, that are happening in Antioch, and they send Barnabas to be a part of that good work. By the way, an example of how churches can cooperate together, even in works of evangelism. Barnabas is sent by the church in Jerusalem for that effort. And in verse 26, after Barnabas has stayed for a period of time in Antioch, in the church, uh, the Bible says he departs, verse 25, and seeks Saul of Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Who is it that composes this church? Well, Acts eleven twenty six 26 says they were disciples. That means followers. But they're given an even more descriptive designation. They're not just followers. They are Christians. They are followers of Christ. The people who compose the church. And if we lacked an understanding of that, Peter was actually very clear in his description. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not a mistake that the church is described as a temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the church collectively, the body of Christ. And importantly, Peter does the same thing. In verse 9 of that same passage, he goes on to say, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All of these things describe the people who compose the church that we're talking about. And so we're not talking about a sterile organization. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about something that's simply handed down from place to place or that is organized in one location under the auspices of some governing body. We're talking about the assembly of God's people that belong to Christ, that follow Christ, that worship Christ, that glorify God in all that they say and all that they do. Perhaps a physical family in some cases, but even more so a spiritual family. That's the concept that we have in mind. Now, with all of that said, you understand as well as I that when the church is described in Scripture, it is invariably described by way of analogy. The church is like something else. And for our benefit, it's very helpful for us to wrap our minds around what that means. Because when an analogy is being utilized, it's utilized for a reason. There are certain things that we understand about the analogy that will help us, or the thing that the church is being compared to, that will help us better appreciate what the church is. And so I want to start, and we'll finish this next time, looking at some of the analogies that we find in the New Testament with regard to the church. So, first and foremost... The church is often described as the house of God. Now when it is described as the house of God, bear in mind that to an individual from a Jewish background, 
their mind immediately would go back to the temple. And when the prophet Isaiah, for example, which is a passage that I don't have listed on the screen, but when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, that the mountain of the Lord's house would be established upon the top of the mountains, those Jews who heard Isaiah preach were thinking temple in their minds. Why? Because the temple was where God dwelled. And so when Scripture talks about the church as the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us, it's really calling in our minds the concept of God being a part of the church. And of course, we have to do the things that He authorizes for us to do as well. Uh, for a couple of passages along those lines, look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, and he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that language, the house of God, the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you have this language about the household of God and the temple of the Lord and the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, all couched together in this section of Scripture, built upon the teachings of the apostles, oriented by the chief cornerstone, Jesus, who is the Christ. What does all of that mean? Why would the church be compared to the household of God? One other passage, and then we'll answer that question. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul was writing to the church in a local sense at Corinth. And he said in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will reveal it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, and he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Importantly, later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, Paul applies that same language to the individual Christian. 
But here upon this occasion, he's talking about the church collectively at Corinth. They are the temple of God. You could say today that as a local congregation, we are to be the temple of God. What does that mean? It means that we have to do all things by the authority of God. Think about the precision of the temple, the way the temple was to be constructed, the way things were to be done in the temple. You had to worship according to God's plan. You had to do what God directed you to do. The same thing is true of the church today. And when Paul uses that language in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The place where God dwells, the place that honors God, the place that gives glory to God by everything that we do, making sure that all that we do is done by His authority, will be the place that provides the foundation for truth. If anyone in this world is going to share the truth with a lost and dying world, won't it be the church? And if we don't do that job, who will? And so when the church is described in Scripture in this way as the house of God, it is to remind us that we are to be followers of God in every aspect, that God is to dwell amongst us as we seek to honor Him, as we seek to worship Him, as we seek to serve Him and that we have a great responsibility, a great task, to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And we're going to go through the other analogies of the church next time, and then we'll spend some time talking about the identity of the church as not, not one group that can be placed alongside every other religious group, but as the undenominational body of Christ. A very, very vital concept for us to grasp.